You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Sue Armstrong, who is a science writer and broadcaster, and also the author most recently of Borrowed Time, The Science of How and Why We Age, and also The Gene That Cracked the Cancer Code. And of course, you've worked extensively on reporting on HIV and other science and health topics over the years. Uh, I thought we'd jump in and, and talk about this latest book. I mean, one thing about aging is that it's a disease that we all have, right? It's not something that's limited to a subset of the population. And I think part of what you were kind of trying to do in the book is explore this notion of aging itself as a disease, so to speak, rather than as something which causes disease, right? So aging is a process which results in a whole host of transformations, a whole host of symptoms. And part of the the inquiry is to try and uncover why this happens. Right? Does it need to happen? Is is it something that it makes evolutionary sense? You you mentioned in, in the book somewhere that some people refer to it as maladaptive. So maybe we can start with that question. It's this idea that I think it was George Williams that really articulated it best, which is: Does aging have an evolutionary purpose? Does it make sense? That could have been my last question, but but I'm going to make it my first question because I, I've had a lot of people on the show to talk about kind of evolution and functionality. So so what purpose, what function does aging serve in, in the evolutionary modeling? I didn't look at it from an evolutionary point of view. What I found fascinating about this whole idea that aging itself might be seen as a disease was the ramifications of that. Because the fact is that the single biggest risk factor for all of the things which we recognize as pathologies, age-related pathologies like um, heart disease and cancer and diabetes and dementia and frailty and all of those things, the single biggest risk factor for those is the the aging process itself. So some people hypothesize that those diseases, which are obviously diseases and we see as diseases, are in fact just the most obvious points on the spectrum. And so you could see the aging process itself as a disease. And what's interesting about that is unless we see that the process itself is pathological, then we just take it as natural and we all put up with a lot of things which quite possibly could be um, ameliorated. And this, and it was very interesting because when I started the book, I was very interested in the biology of aging and what we might be able to do about it. Very much looking at improving the li- the health span rather than the lifespan. But it was very difficult to sort of separate it at first from the snake oil people who like to f- who who are intent on keeping us going for thousands of years and actually cheating death. And that didn't interest me at all. But what I found interesting was the idea of aging itself as a pathological process that we can perhaps do something about it, ease it as it goes on without. And that would naturally extend lifespan a little bit. I mean, right up to the maximum that our bodies can take. But it wouldn't be something that kept us going forever and ever. It wouldn't be immortality. And I find that very interesting because at the moment, the chances are that we may live to a very ripe old age, into our 90s. But a lot of us will be very infirm, maybe for 20, 30 years towards the end. And that is just, that's not really living. So what, what I was interested in doing was exploring the biology of aging and what we could do to improve the 
health span while we were alive rather than extend it into immortality. Right. And I was, I was actually expecting you to spend uh, some more time, you know, in Silicon Valley, we have all these people that are, are claiming that they can extend life once you get past some hump. And, and what they're doing essentially is extrapolating the life expectancy extensions that we've seen over the last couple of decades. You, you highlight that the average life expectancy on planet Earth has moved from, you know, the 40s into the 70s in our lifetime, really, in just since World War II, right? This has happened. This has been a phenomenal extension, but you also highlight that, you know, what we've done is, is we haven't really extended our living as much as we've extended our dying. And so I think if we were to live to be 200 years old, but we were to be in this frail state, we might not really want that all, all that much. So the research that you're, you're highlighting is kind of research that gets at the heart of why we, we sort of lose our, our performance, you know, lose our capabilities, lose our integrity over, over time. And you go through a whole bunch of different kind of theories. And it seems like none of these theories are the kind of silver bullet that, that explain things. So maybe we can kind of walk through some of these theories one by one and try to figure out, you know, why it is that each one of them kind of runs into some dead end. So if I can go back to the evolutionary um, aspect of it, I think natural selection, it seems very obvious that big bodies like ours, and we take a lot of resources to keep us going and all this sort of thing. It makes evolutionary sense that our bodies would be sort of disposable at some point. We pass on our genes to the next generation. And from the point of view of, yeah, that's all that really matters. And I think, it, yes, it does make sense from an evolutionary point of view that aging is part of the thing. Aging, moving on towards death, that we die out after a certain length of time and that the younger generation that takes our place and so on, it, it, that's the sort of, the rhythm of life seems to have, seems to be very natural. But I didn't actually look at it from, I didn't speak to evolutionary biologists about it. But yes, let's get back to the... Um, various well, well it, it's, it's implied in a lot of, I mean, it comes, it shows up in a lot of your work, this idea of trade-offs, right? So if evolutionary biologists are all about kind of trade-offs and they were like, if you want more of this, you kind of have to give up a, a little bit of this. And so I think, you know, George Williams theory, which is sort of, there were predecessors. The idea was, okay, look, if you have to choose between investing in something that is going to make you more fit in your youth versus something that's going to make you more fit in your old age the payoff to doing the former is going to be higher than the one in the latter because you, know, you may not be around to enjoy the fruits of the thing in the, in the latter case. So that is going to give preference to any organism that favors, you know, fitness in, in youth. I think that's, that's the, the basic, basic argument. And so creatures that are subject to predation and accidents and other sorts of things, they're going to have shorter lifespans than ones that like tortoises that can kind of protect themselves against predation and accidents for a longer period of, of, of time. But that even shows up, I think, in, in your book, the earlier book, right, the P53 book, where there's this constant trade-off between cancer and the preservation of, of youth. Maybe we could start with that because that P53 shows up a lot in the, the Borrowed Time book. What did you learn about that, about, you know, cancer and the trade-offs that you see in cancer? Well, one of the main focuses of attention in gerontology, which is the science of looking at the science of aging, is looking at senescent cells. Senescent cells, senescence is actually our body's own uh, protective mechanism against cancer. Because the way we grow and develop is by our uh, cells dividing and 
creating new cells. But what happens is every time a cell divides, it has to copy its DNA faithfully into its daughter cell. And over the years, if it's doing it over and over again, the chances of getting little glitches in the copying machinery of the DNA are very great. And this is where dangers come in. You get a, a mutant gene or something which can be very dangerous and could run amok. And that's what cancer is all about. So we've got this mechanism that our cells have a finite lifespan. One would have expected them to, to die off, but they don't in fact die off. They senesce, they just stop dividing any longer, but they're still sitting there doing stuff. And that's supposed to be a cancer protection strategy. And so that's a direct thing that what's protecting us from cancer is actually one of the big driving forces of aging. It creates senescent cells, which are these cells that sit around and that haven't died. And so if we were to somehow interfere with the, the process that causes cell senescence, this could potentially lead to higher rates of, of cancer, right? That's, that's, that's the concern. Yeah. The interesting thing about senescent cells is they don't die, but they start to secrete things that are the real hallmarks of aging. They start to secrete substances that chew away the collagen, which is the stuff that sticks our cells together and it's nice sort of elastic stuff and it's what gives young skin and young flesh its sort of bloom. And when you get older, these senescent cells start to leak out this stuff which eats away at the collagen and it causes wrinkles and baggy bits and so on. Now what happens generally is the immune system clears away senescent cells that all the time you're making senescent cells from babyhood onwards because you need to. That's what happens with, with your cells dividing. They'll come to the end of the time and then they'll senesce. But the immune system clears them away and clears them away. As we get older, as time passes, the, the immune system is less efficient at clearing them away. So these things accumulate and they, they s send out a lot of uh, signals which aren't particularly healthy. But the sad thing about that program, which is supposed to protect us from cancer, one of the things it does is in eating away at the collagen, it can actually leave gaps between the cells, which gives uh, pre-cancerous little tiny little tumours, which might have been held in check by firm young tissue, room to grow which is one reason why people tend to get cancer or it's more of a risk of cancer when you get older and your skin is less firm and so on. So there's this constant sort of, yes, weighing up the pros and cons, the battle between aging and, and, and cancer. And aging does seem to be, or one big aspect of aging does seem to be a payoff. It, it's the price we pay for protecting ourselves from cancer. Because yeah, most people think that cancer is just a, it's just a lottery, right? And the more tickets you have to the lottery, the more likely you're going to, you know, win or, or lose the lottery. And so as you live, you just have, you know, more and more cell division. And so you have more and more tickets to the, to the lottery. But this argument is different, right? Not simply an, an accumulation of lottery tickets, but rather it's saying that the mechanisms that exist to thwart these cells, these faulty cells, the mechanism starts to fail. Yes, that, that seems to be the picture. And all sorts of other little things creep in that give it an advantage. As I say, lighten your skin, getting your flesh getting more um, saggy and the gaps and things like that, which give it a chance to, to grow. The other thing is the tumor suppressor gene P53, which was the one I wrote about before, is supposed to patrol the cells and see that every time the, the DNA is, is copied for the daughter cell, that it's faithfully copied. And it's very effective, but it, and it will set off a cascade of events to protect you from cancer. But if the cells, if, if the genes above P53, the ones which are giving P, sending the signals to P53, or the ones that P53 is instructing to, to do something after it's been triggered, if, any, if there's mutations in any of those, 
then you can get problems. So th there's so many little things that can go wrong and can go wrong as you get older. The immune system, look, has been in the news a lot lately for obvious reasons. And, you know, we've seen that COVID has afflicted older people much more seriously than younger people. And, and I think in the news, we, we hear something to the effect that, well, it's just because the immune system of older people, it doesn't really work well. But when we hear about the deleterious effects of COVID, sometimes it's because the immune system is, is too weak and, and sometimes it's because it's too strong. Right. So so what is it about the immune system that starts to decay and, and stops stops working over time as you get older? All sorts of things start to wear off. The, the first responders, the I mean, there's some very interesting stuff. The, the first responders in the immune system are white blood cells called neutrophils. And when they detect that something has come into the body that shouldn't be there, then they um, home in on this and they're supposed to either engulf it and take it away and they um, send out signals to the adaptive immune system to bring in heavier artillery. But as you get older, they lose, one person put it very nicely, they lose their satna because what happens is they're circulating in your bloodstream all the time. And when they sense that something, when they're tipped off that there's an alien in the body, they will literally climb through the, the walls of the cell of the bloodstream and go towards wherever the offending thing is, the invading thing is. And literally, as they get older, they lose their satnap. They can hear, they, they probably, their, their hearing isn't so good. They know that something's around. And you can actually see them under a microscope going off in all sorts, climbing through the walls of the blood vessels and going off in the wrong direction. So that's one thing. Your white blood cells just are not as, they seem to have lost their satnap to a certain extent as you get older. This is not because uh, there's too many signals, right? So I think you mentioned that, you know, senescent cells are actually stimulating right, an, an immune response, and they help to direct white blood cells towards injury and towards, you know, places where, where you need regeneration. But that the proliferation of these senescent cells, does that lead to a um, interference in, in the navigation systems? Of as, I said, as you were saying, that there's a balance to be struck. And at the beginning, the senescent cells that we're creating from babyhood onwards, the, uh, an efficient immune system will sweep them away before they've done damage. And the fact is, as you would imagine, if nature has allowed them to stay in our bodies, they must have a purpose and they do have a bit of a purpose. But if they stay away too long, that's when you get problems and they accumulate. And as you say, they do start, they leach out these things, they leach out the things, they leak out the substances that eat away the collagen. But they also send messages to the immune system to come and clear them away. And if you've got masses of these things, they're constantly on. And so we've got what you call, what has been known as, it, it's inflammation, but it's not the inflammation that we all understand, hot skin and pussy spots and that sort of stuff. It's low grade, below the radar inflammation, which is going on the whole time, just bombarding the immune system with little messages coming from everywhere the whole time. And that's certainly one of the things that wears out the immune system. Inflammaging is the term that, that you use in the book? Yes. That some, somebody realized, somebody, I can't remember exactly who he was, an Italian scientist who first recognized the huge role that below the radar constant inflammation is playing in aging. And he nicknamed it inflammaging, which is this constant overstimulation or tweaking of the immune system the whole time by senescent cells, but by other things which are causing, sending out signals to the immune system as well, and which get worse as we get older. 
Right. And so are interventions to kind of reduce inflammation effective? You mentioned, I think, in the book that statins can help, can reduce inflammation. Is that an intervention that, that is, is generally helpful just to reduce overall inflammation or is, is inflammation just a, a, an inevitable part of cell senescence? No, it's not just cell senescence. In fact, there's a, there's a lot of other things which send out what, the, what are called inflammatory cytokines, which are messages to the immune system to keep it, to prime it. And okay, you've got your senescent cells, which are a big part of it. You've got adipose tissue. Fat does the same thing. So people who are obese are sending out these messages the whole time, which is one reason why exercise is so good for you. There's the overeating, the uh, byproducts of metabolism, the free radicals, which we create as we're metabolizing. Those also send out signals to the immune system to come and clear them away, to get the machinery, to tidy up everything. They're also sending out messages. So you've got lots and lots of things sending out messages. And you say, is there anything we can do to stop it? There are a lot of just ordinary lifestyle things, keeping slim, exercise, not being too stressed. But one of the interesting things is the, there's a very interesting person who's an immunologist in Birmingham. And she's, she was telling me, I interviewed her at great length in, for the book. And she was saying that one of the biggest producers of these inflammatory cytokines, these little messages to the immune system to keep it fired up is sedentary muscle tissue. So if we're sitting still the whole time, our muscles are sending out messages to the immune system that there's something going on here. The muscles that are moving counteract this. They, they produce another message which dampens down the immune system. So what they reckon that our sedentary lifestyles are a real cause of aging and inflammation, this low-grade inflammation and by corollary inflammation. And so what they haven't worked out exactly what you need to do, but they say that sitting hours on end is seriously bad for you. And certainly Janet was suggesting that standing at your desk is better. And it's become quite a craze in a lot of places where people are using standing up at their desks. And this is very good because apparently just putting weight bearing on your legs is enough to counteract the messages going to the immune system. So that's seriously good. You just have to get up once an hour or something and go make yourself a cup of tea or do a little bit of, I don't know, running on the spot or whatever for a short while. Um, and that makes a huge difference. So there's all those sort of things. Lots and lots of lifestyle things can be done to dampen down this inflammation. That's what they say. Sitting is the new smoking. I, I know a lot of HR in the HR literature, a lot of companies are providing standing desks. They're doing standing meetings. They're trying to encourage exercise in their employees. It's kind of a mystery as to why though, right? Is, you know, sitting down, why does this, what does your body interpret this as some kind of illness or, or disease, right? What exact, what do you think is, is going on there? It's a good question. I don't know why your body should interpret it as that, but certainly sedentary muscles, muscles which aren't being used, are sending out these little messages. I don't know, maybe, I have no idea, but you could speculate that maybe it's sending out messages that this is a, a body that isn't well and the immune system is, should be sort of patrolling to see if there's anything on board. So if you're a hunter-gatherer and you're out in the bush and you're suddenly lying down and not moving, I don't know. I really don't know. That's pure speculation. But certainly that is a, a big finding. But they have found that even you can keep your immune system really tuned up if you do fairly strong exercise. And apparently 80-year-olds who are really into cycling and who do a lot of cycling a week at a decent pace, they, you look at their immune systems and they can be as good as a 20-year-old. So there are things you can do. 
But Janet was saying, when my face dropped, because I don't cycle that much, she said, just standing, just weight bearing and doing a little bit of exercise every day and not leading a sedentary life. That gives a really good bang for your buck. Right. And so you mentioned that in, in the book that, for instance, people who have hip injuries or break their hip, that a substantial number of them are dead with, within a year. And, and you mentioned also that even things like healing of skin wounds takes considerably longer for older people. So, so it's clear that the, the immune system is, is declining, but that's the innate immune system. Is, is the acquired immune system also impaired as you get older? I mean, certainly we would suspect that given what we've seen with, with COVID, where it appears as if vaccines are, are less effective with, with older people and, and so forth. And the flu, people are, are, their immunity to the flu seems to degrade over, over time. Is, is that simply because the immune system is overloaded with the cumulative exposure to, to diseases? Or is it that they are simply incapable of, of responding as, as quickly and effectively? I think the whole thing just gets more sluggish. I mean, because the innate and the innate immune system is also primed by the, the first responders and so on. And a lot of those are not, they're not sending as strong signals about what's needed. I mean, there's another one, a dendritic cell, which is one of the first things to actually set the alarm going that there's things on board that shouldn't be. And their signal gets very much weaker just with age and we don't know necessarily why. So none of the signals going to any of our cells, any of the cells in the immune system are as strong as we get older. And the thing about wound healing is that's very much directly the neutrophils, these things which lose their satnap, because generally speaking, they accumulate around the site of a wound, but to bring in all the factors that will start healing it. And if they've lost their sap nerve and if they're sluggish at getting to the site, and then they've lost their mojo by the time they've got there, then, you know, your wounds don't heal so well. And so that's an interestingly, yes, the senescent cells also accumulate around the site of wounds. Uh, and so everything just dampens down, but doesn't work quite so well. And I think you, you spent a considerable chunk of the book talking about Alzheimer's, which my father had Alzheimer's. And I think you know, a lot of people have, have seen this and they dread this, right? This is the, the worst case scenario for many of us is thinking about acquiring dementia of some kind. And, and I think some people think of it as just a natural part of aging, but there's a whole literature now that's trying to understand dementia and Alzheimer's in, in particular. Some of these theories talk about it as an inflammatory disease. Others talk about it as a form of kind of diabetes of the brain. And it seems like we haven't made a whole lot of progress in understanding Alzheimer's or in coming up with interventions that can kind of heal it or cure it. What is the current state of research on, on Alzheimer's? And is, is this something that is a symptom of aging? Does it have similarities with some of the other dysfunctions that go along with aging? Or should we think of Alzheimer's as, as a kind of an independent and separate disease? They're all very good questions. Thing is, a huge amount has been learned about Alzheimer's, but there's still a huge amount that needs to be learned. I mean, for one thing, they know what it looks like in, inside, but there are all kinds of contradictions because the very first case that Alzheimer described of this woman, when he did an autopsy of her, he found these clumps of amyloid in her brain and clumps of tau protein, these proteins that gum up the mm. brain. And so those are the sort of, those are the classic indicators or yes, diagnostic. And for a lot of people were focusing on that. And the um, hypothesis that was 
has been around the longest that most people have put their money behind. It was the amyloid hypothesis, amyloid cascade hypothesis, which reckons that it's these, this clumping of this amyloid protein in the brain that is setting off a cascade of events, which then brings in another protein and makes that go into clumps. And this protein is one which makes it the sort of communication channels in the brain. And this comes in and the communication channels get collapsed and so on. So the whole thing is a complete mess. And they, the assumption was that amyloid was causing this, but they found that where they brought in drugs and things to try and clear away the amyloid or prevent the amyloid from happening, it doesn't stop Alzheimer's. And I think that's one of the problem with this latest drug that has been approved by the FDA. An emergency drug seems to be something which is targeting the amyloid, but hasn't been proven to improve cognitive function. So. There's a hell of a lot has been learned, but a hell of a lot still needs to be learned. And there's lots of mysteries because one of the things that's extraordinary is people who have Alzheimer's, if they die with Alzheimer's and you look at their brains, you will find those things. But the fascinating thing is that they've done autopsies on people who were very old and did not have dementia, had very clear minds when they died. And they found the same pathology, what looks like the same pathology, their brains gummed up with amyloid. So there's a lot of contradictions that they don't understand. But they've also found quite a number of genes which sort of give you a, a increase the risk of getting Alzheimer's. But they reckon that some people put the role played by the genes at up to 70%, but most people don't reckon it's as high as that. But one of the, they're now looking also at the interplay of genes and other factors, environmental factors, very particularly air pollution. And I think the, probably one of the most fruitful ways of looking at it is that it is a disease that it's the genes and the environment interplay. And there are things you can do about it, particularly the things like air pollution and that sort of stuff, which seems to be a big factor. Right. And so some people would say that the amyloids are uh, a symptom rather than a cause and that they are in, they may be a defense mechanism against yeah. some other underlying cause. And so if it's a, de a defense mechanism, what is it defending against I exactly? Well, the, it's fairly recently been discovered that amyloid has some antibacterial um, properties. So some people, neurologists uh, and neuroscientists have been looking at the idea that maybe it's a response to inflammation, infection, yes, an infection in the brain from all sorts of things that we get in our lives and or even inflammation caused by pollutants and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they reckon that some people are looking at amyloid and say that might be one of the roles that it's playing. It's actually accumulating because there's damage to the brain and it's a response to damage, a response to infection rather than the, the cause. And there was somebody who's been arguing against the amyloid hypothesis. The amyloid hypothesis got a lot of traction because it was discovered that this is, that is how people with familial Alzheimer's who do have a faulty gene creating this, these amyloid blocks. And they are, if you've got that faulty gene, they're a hundred percent likely to get the Alzheimer's, but that's only a very small proportion of people. Most people who get Alzheimer's, it's what's called sporadic. So it's a mixture of their genetic inheritance, their environment, all sorts of things. And pinning down exactly what it is and where you intervene is very difficult. But one guy never liked the amyloid hypothesis because he'd found some other genes that seemed to be important and he liked sort of poking fun at the amyloid hypothesis. But he used to say to his students that amyloid plaques were like tombstones. They mark the, the place where 
neurons have died, but they haven't killed the neuron. Just like tombstone in a graveyard will mark the place where there's a dead body, but nobody would suggest that the tombstone had killed the person. So there's a lot of different views about this. Yeah, I love that example. I'm going to use that whenever I talk about correlation and causation. <laughs> but you also um, mentioned a story about some folks from the Amazon jungle who don't seem to get Alzheimer's and they have a very high parasite load, right? And so, you know, when we look at the extension of life, probably the primary cause of our life extension in the last couple centuries has been kind of the suppression of parasites, right? And so, you know, parasites have been plaguing humans for, you know, our entire existence. And there, there may be some connection between this kind of parasite response system and, and Alzheimer's. So, so how do we understand that? We're not exposed to the, the kind of parasites that folks in, in the Amazon are exposed to, and yet we're getting the, the Alzheimer's and they're not. So what, what is that mechanism that could be at work there? Well, this is actually a very interesting story. As I say, they've found quite a number of genes that seem to confer or, or protect against. They increase the risk or they decrease the risk of getting Alzheimer's. One of them that they focused on is called ApoEE4, and that produces a protein. We human beings have something like three versions of ApoE, and one of them is this two, three, and four. And if you've got the gene for ApoE2, then that seems to be protective against Alzheimer's. If you've got three, it's sort of neither here nor there. If you've got four, E4, then that seems to be the one that confers an extra risk of Alzheimer's. And people were wondering, well, why has, in, in evolution, why has this not been sloughed off? Is it, if it's so dangerous to people, why hasn't it died out of the population? But what's interesting about these people in the Amazon, the Somali people, that have been looked at is they do have very high parasite loads and they've discovered that, and they found this in Mexico as well, that ApoE4 is protective against parasite in infestation. And so that's why e evolutionarily it hasn't been out of the population. It does have a, a role, but they find that ApoE4 in, in uh, these Amazon people, if they don't have the, if, if, the, if they're le leading Western lifestyles and they don't have the high parasite loads, then it has the same risk mm. uh, values as in the as the rest of the population for Alzheimer's. Well, that that, that could potentially lead to new therapies, right? I'm, I'm sure you've you've heard about the therapies for inflammatory bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease that involve the use of of parasites, right? Well, though it seems to tame or domesticate the the immune system in, in some way. Maybe that'll be the next anti Alzheimer's drug. <laughs> we'll, we'll all have to, you know, take some kind of parasite. But you you talk also about other infectious diseases that can more or less drain or tax the immune system. You talk about CMV. And I, I think most people, certainly in the wake of the COVID crisis, most people failed to understand the number of viruses that people sort of carry around routinely and the amount of bacteria that people carry around routinely, all of which is being managed by the immune system. I mean, certainly if you're from my generation, right, you have the chicken pox and you're managing this for your entire lifetime. Your immune system is keeping it in check until you encounter some stressful life event and then it kind of reemerges to infect the next generation. And, you know, CMV is something that doesn't have any symptoms unless you are HIV positive. It may have some symptoms, but it doesn't seem to have any symptoms. And yet your immune machinery is probably busy keeping it in check. How do these kind of latent infections impact the aging process? Well, I think they're quite significant. I think they will be one of the causes of keeping the inflammation going the whole time. Because 
Um, terribly sadly. I mean, I spent a lot of my journalistic career writing about AIDS. I wrote a book for the World Health Organization on AIDS and HIV. And I found this terribly sad because once I watched the advent of the antiretroviral drugs and they were absolutely mm -hmm. revolutionary. And I watched this go from being a death sentence to a disease we could live with. And lots of people are living with the HIV load completely suppressed. But what they're discovering now is that people with HIV tend to get the diseases of old age, maybe 20 years earlier than other people. And at one point they thought it might be the toxicity of the drugs that they're taking the whole time. But studies have shown that in fact, it's the virus itself, which is there, and it keeps on, even though it's properly suppressed, it's keeping on just sloughing off tiny little bits of virus into the bloodstream the whole time. And that's keeping the immune system on its toes. So there, that's a big cause of inflammation and, and this low-grade inflammation and inflammaging. And the same with cytomegalovirus, C CMV. But also you were talking about uh, the chickenpox virus. That's a very interesting thing because people tend to get shingles later on in life or when they've had a very stressful event. And this is because you get chickenpox as a kid, as I did as a nine-year-old in a caravan in Ireland. And I tell the story of that in my book. And it was a, a nasty thing. But then many years later, when I was off to do some AIDS reporting in Belgrade, and I was sitting on the plane and it was really uncomfortable. I had sort of hypersensitivity around my waist. And then I found all these tiny little blisters. And I was in my 60s and this was shingles. And this is the virus which is sitting there, kept in check by a, a healthy immune system that breaks through, which is what it's doing with HIV. It's the virus isn't breaking through, but it's keeping the inflammation going the whole time. So yes, the, those sort of things happen as you get older. And that's to do with your immune system is either overtaxed through stress or it's overtaxed through inflammation and just aging, the aging process. Uh, you didn't mention this in the book, but I think there's a lot of people who think that a gum disease is related to Alzheimer's and that there is an infection that passes through the blood-brain barrier from the, the gums, right? And that they've detected the bacteria that, that causes gum disease in the brains of folks with Alzheimer's. Have you seen any literature around that? I've certainly heard that and I didn't actually write about that. I didn't follow that up in the book. But I have heard it and it, it makes sense. As I said, it could easily make sense. Again, this will be a drip on the immune system. This will be inflammation and inflammaging. But also, as I say, Alzheimer's does seem to be a mixture of your genetic inheritance. If you've got the genes that do confer extra risk and you've got environmental things. And there are people who feel that, as we were saying, that it might be infection in the brain. It might be all sorts of things, or pollution. They're looking at the different things that might happen, the environmental factors that might affect your brain at the same time and interact with the genetic inheritance to, to cause Alzheimer's. So that, it makes sense to me, but I didn't follow it up. I don't know what, which germs they are. You mentioned also this idea of a leaky gut. And I, you know, I know the popular press, uh, you see a lot of stuff r related to this. And a lot of the stuff in the popular press doesn't seem to connect to the scientific literature. But you discuss the science behind the, this idea that there may be some breakdown in the barrier between the digestive system and the circulatory system, which leads to the circulation of things which attract the attention of the immune system. Could, could you Absolutely. talk a bit about that? This is very interesting. I was talking earlier about the other things that prime the immune system, that send out messages to the immune system. I said 
fat tissue does and various things like that. And the other thing is leaky guts. And as we get older, the walls of our gut just get looser with the collagen breakdown and all this sort of thing. So the bacteria that we live with in our gut and which are friendly bacteria most of the time helping us in our digestion. And in fact, they're absolutely vital. We tolerate them because we're living in a symbiotic relationship with them while they're in our gut and doing that thing. But as soon as they get out into the bloodstream in the places where they shouldn't be, they're suddenly recognized as aliens. And so then the immune system starts seeing them as aliens. And that's one of the, that's a very big contributor to inflammaging. It's priming the immune system all the time once your gut starts to leak, which is one of the connections with the HIV thing, that one of the prime targets of HIV is the gut, the wall of the gut. And so people with HIV have impairment of the wall of the gut at the very beginning of their infections and so on. And so that's one of the key things that's keeping the immune system going as well. And they reckon that's one of the reasons why people with HIV are also um, getting some of these age-related diseases earlier than others because their leaky guts have been there for a long time. Well, one of the scariest things I, I, I read in your book was that mitochondria itself it might be perceived as uh, a foreign agent and attacked, right? And since every cell has mitochondria, that means that every cell could be a, a potential source of inflammation should the mitochondria, you know, leak out. That seems like something that would be pretty difficult to avoid. Well, again, everything, it, 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 when you look at the whole system, you realize that everything, all aspects of our cells tend to sort of wear out a little bit with time. And the mitochondria, if they start to get a little bit aged and not so tight, then some of them might rupture. But I don't think this is a problem that throughout the body necessarily. But the mitochondria can. The, and the mitochondria, of course, are the cell's batteries. That's where all the energy is created of, and your DNA is sort of in there. And so that is serious. But yes, they can rupture and they can cause leaky batteries in your cells. It could be a problem as well. But a lot of these things are, as you say, the, this is just the sort of wear and tear. They've been around a very long time. And going back to what you were asking at the a lot earlier about the, the reasons for aging or the theories about aging, one of the main theories is one called the disposable soma theory, which is that the, the imperative of any species is to pass on its genes to the next generation and to make sure that you stick around long enough to make sure the next generation is on its feet and ready to go. After that, your body doesn't necessarily have a lot to do. In a species, and it costs a, an awful lot in resources to keep a body going and build a body and keep a body going. So what, they, what the disposable soma theory is that our bodies have invested a huge amount in making sure that the sperm and the egg, the vehicles for the genetic inheritance to go into the next generation, all that sort of thing, that the maintenance of those is absolutely spot on. And the repair and maintenance mechanisms, but the repair and maintenance mechanisms for the rest of the body, the soma as it's called, are just good enough or good enough to make sure that this body carries the genes through to the next generation, sees the next generation on its feet, grows to an adult, to reproductive age, and then sees the next generation on its feet. But after that, evolution doesn't particularly care about us. Nature doesn't care about us. And so our bodies do begin to wear out just literally because the repair, maintenance and repair mechanisms aren't kept up to scratch. So that's the disposable soma theory, and that's a very, it's a very mainstream theory of why we age. So this would be about the trade-off between investing in germ cells and somatic cells. And I think you, yeah. you mentioned that some of the experiments that have been done on worms, which extends their, their life, does so at the expense of their, their fertility somewhat. So this means that they're 
presumably in investing more in the somatic cell maintenance and less in in germ cell maintenance. Is that what's going on there? Is, I, is, is the, is the... I, don't, I don't know. But what they have done is they've found, yes, they've found um, certain genes which seems to confer longevity on mutant genes, which confer longevity on the worms. And they've also found that if you vary various treatments and so on, you can extend the life of the worm by mutating these genes or and this sort of thing. But I, I don't know whether it's anything to do with the sperm and the egg. I, I don't know. It's, now, I think a lot of people... A lot of people want quick fixes. <laughs> you know, we all want to. There are absolutely no quick fixes. That, that I discovered that. And, but I mean, what's fascinating about biology is the way it does something and it'll compensate some other way and it finds ways around things. It's mm -hmm. so intricate. It's just wonderful. That's what I find so exciting about writing about science. You know, nobody likes aging. Uh, we sometimes mistake the appearance of aging for aging. And so if we put some, get some, facial surgery and creams, we, we like to say that we've halted the aging process. So we just kind of halted the, the appearance of, of aging. But, but some of the quick fixes that have happened, you know, that, that are popular in the literature, one is, uh, has to do with antioxidants and the consumption of antioxidants. And I remember there was a huge spike in interest in, in antioxidants, and this was built on this oxidization theory. And that, that kind of didn't turn out to be as effective as we thought. And then there's also this caloric restriction intervention where people cut back on their uh, consumption of food and they go on a long fast and so forth. And I think that there was some promise there, but the promise hasn't turned out to be powerful as we thought. What do we know about a diet and life expectancy and aging? Very interesting. One of the ways they did extend the life of these little worms, and they found the same with all kinds of things. They found it with fruit flies, all of the sort of model organisms, mice, rats. They found caloric restriction, literally cutting down their food to the sort of bare minimum, making sure they got all the nutrients they needed, but with as few calories. It really pushed up the, the life expectancy enormously. I mean, I think with worms, they managed to make them live 10 times as long as if they gave them a very restricted diet. And I think with mice, it was sort of three times as long. But the interesting thing was that mice who'd been on caloric restriction, they finally dropped off the perch at some point. They died. But people didn't know what they died of because they were so healthy. And so they found that not only did this extend the lifespan, but it seriously ex extended the health span. Things remained healthy for a long time. And so quite a number of people, if, if it works with mice and it works with worms, it works with flies and so on. What about and water fleas, just everything. What about humans? And so a whole lot of people have been doing this experiment with themselves, caloric restriction. And I had, a, I interviewed a guy and I imagined before I interviewed him, I thought he would be a very sort of dry, dry sort of stick, but he was such an interesting guy. He had a lovely sense of humor and so on, but he was a, a geek. He did a lot of sort of technological stuff and he was so excited by the promise of things on in the future that he wanted to live as long as he could to see these things come to fruition. So he cut down his calories massively. And he was very funny about what effect this had on his family life and his, his social life, sitting there eating a lettuce leaf at Thanksgiving. Yeah, this would be tough, like tough for me because I, I think the only reason why I'd want to the only reason why I want to live longer is so I can eat more meals. Well, <laughs> I don't know whether that... <laughs> that that's very much that that I feel the same. But what they have discovered, and I mean, they discovered it also by default when a bunch of people were put at the, doing the Biosphere 2 experiment in the Arizona desert, whether or not we can have life support machines or life support systems on Mars or on, in outer space. And so they were putting people in this capsule where everything was recycled. They were supposed to grow their own food and the air was recycled and the 
all sorts of things. And they were in there for quite some time. I can't remember exactly how long, about 14 months or something. And they, they started to run out of food. So the guy who was running the experiment cut down their calories massively. And they were all very hungry and very scratchy. It wasn't a happy experiment. But what was interesting was they were all extremely fit. And looking at the parameters afterwards of how their hearts were operating, their lungs, their livers, just everything was really good. And so you say that it hasn't showed the promise that it was expected. Certainly, they were doing these experiments, caloric restriction with macaque mon monkeys. But um, because macaques can live a very long time, it took a long time to find out whether cutting their calories actually extended their lifespan. But the data came in a few years back and it showed that it didn't actually increase their lifespan, but it massively increased their health span. And so what they're trying to do now is find ways of mimicking caloric restriction without cutting people's food consumption, but cutting, yes, mimicking calorie restriction. Because it does seem, yeah. that does seem to be, that's one of the lifestyle things. And certainly this is part of the whole thing about not being obese or obesity being uh, bad news for you on so many levels, it's doing damage to you. Yeah. How, we have to figure out how to avoid people being hangry. I think that would be the, the biggest, yeah. biggest challenge, right? But you mentioned that the immune function though is impaired somewhat from caloric restriction. Does it matter that these caloric restriction diets were imposed in relatively sterile environments? I mean, if people were exposed to more pathogens and then, you know, maybe the caloric restriction would not be as uh, beneficial. Well, it, it's, it's true. You know, I didn't follow that up enormously, but I, it, it is interesting because one of the people who had been doing um, experiments with mice and seeing whether and mice and fruit flies and looking at the effects of caloric restriction, she noticed this thing about it suppressing the immune system to an extent. And so certainly the inference was that people shouldn't be cutting back on their calories drastically like that at times of flu and when there's infections around. But I don't know quite why it would affect the immune system. I really don't know. But certainly in the biosphere too, it would, would have been a, a fairly sterile environment. Well, much of your writing has been much of your writing has been about genetics and about genes and epigenesis. And I think that the discovery of technology that enables us to decode genes has led to an explosion of research in genetic fields. And I think that it led to a lot of theories about the genetic causes of different diseases and, and so forth, perhaps at the expense of environmental research. Towards the end of your book, you emphasize that the environment may play a huge role in our aging. And by environment, you mean, of course, food, you mean exercise, you mean sleep, you mean exposure to parasites, et cetera. Do you think that area of research is kind of under-invested in I mean, you mentioned that the amount of research that goes into aging in general is quite small relative to the cost of aging to the economy. Do you think that within that investment, the, the investment is, is skewed more towards genetics? I mean, certainly the COVID crisis has drawn our attention not only to the cost of infectious diseases, but the people who are you know, most affected by, by the disease often had uh, comorbidities which were avoidable, right? Such as uh, obesity and, and diabetes and you know, exposure to air pollution and, and smoking and so forth. Do you think that we need to redirect our attention more towards environmental or more easily avoidable causes of, of aging? I think the message that came from the genetic 
information that they learn on aging of, with the worms and all these other things, that they find certain mutant genes which extended the lifespan and so on. I think all that did, people said, well, if we tinker around with human genes, can we extend our lifespan? The answer is no, you couldn't do that anyway. But what it, all that did was it proved that aging is not static. It's not something that, it's not a total inevitability. Certainly it is inevitable, but it's a, what they call a plastic process. You can intervene, you can ameliorate it in various ways. And so it's worth doing because it is so costly, but you're not going to stop it completely. But as I think the message that came across very strongly in my research for the book was that your genetic inheritance is not your destiny. Genes aren't destiny. That came across in the P53 book on cancer as well, that you've got all these, we found fantastic things that the genes are doing and how they're orchestrated and so on. But it's the interplay of the environment that you're living in, how you're adapted to the environment you're living in, how you cope with the environment you're living in with your genetic inheritance. And you've got this epigenome, which is the link between what's going on in the environment and how your genes are playing out. These things are terribly important. I don't know what the balance of resources is into research of these things, but I think there are a lot of people looking at both sides of things. And a lot of it is actually the boring old messages that we've had all along. Get exercise, sleep, don't drink too much alcohol, all the boring stuff, and don't eat too much. Those are very important environmental things. And those messages have been around a long time. What the genetics is doing is showing that just how terribly complex these things are, but also that there's this interplay between the biology of our bodies and how we are responding and reacting to the outside world, the environment in which we live. Well, I love this term health span. Instead of thinking about lifespan, which is what we do when we're thinking about markers of, of progress, there's countless charts out there, which the extension of lifespan throughout different countries over time periods, but there are no similar graphics that describe the extension of, of health span. And you know, quality of life is so important that if we could be like those mice that just sort of are perfectly healthy until the day we just, you know, drop dead, that would be so much better than having this decay, which kicks in. And what I found interesting about the statistics in the book is that, you know, whether people die at 40 or 50 or 80, it, it seems like the percentage of time that they spend in this kind of decay process seems to be more or less constant. And so if we could somehow extend our, our health span and not just our, our lifespan, this would be hugely beneficial. And towards the end of the book, you speculate on kind of what the ROI uh, of this might be, right? If we think about just the cost to our economy of taking care of people who are in terrible health, I'm not even mentioning the, the benefits that those people would experience to higher quality life. And we compare that to the investment in aging related research. It's really quite shocking, especially considering how much investment is made into the specific symptoms of, of aging. Right. So should we rethink our, our research efforts rather than you know, focusing on investments around the symptoms? We should be focusing our investment around the underlying process, which gives rise to those symptoms. I think absolutely undoubtedly. And actually that brings us back to the question, the thing we were discussing at the beginning as to whether aging is a disease. And I know when somebody first said that to me, I balked, I thought, oh dear, this the pathologizing everything, having had children. I know that at one point the big issue was, are they pathologizing childbirth and all that sort of thing? So I thought, this is just another one. It's actually very interesting because as I said, those diseases that we all know, nobody would suggest that heart disease, heart failure and dementia 
and those sort of things and frailty. Nobody would say and arthritis and all that sort of stuff. Nobody would say those weren't diseases and those are considered the diseases of old age. When you understand that they are in fact just points on the spectrum that suddenly you think, hang on, this process has got rather nasty. Then you think, well, can we intervene earlier in the process and try and stop those things happening, either stop them or make them happen a lot later. And that's what gerontology is all about. But, and the thing is, a lot of these things that we've discovered, like the calorie restriction and how to get rid of senescent cells, they found things called senolytics, which will clear the senescent cells from the body. But as you said earlier, those could be dangerous because they would override our cancer suppression mechanisms. But they found things which will just moderate the senescent cells or take some of them out at a time sort of thing, or even get the, the senescent cells going again. So there's quite a lot of things we can do to ameliorate aging. But as long as it's seen as a completely natural process, there's no money in it. The, the FDA doesn't see it as a disease. It's not something that is recognized as something we should be curing. But if you can recognize aging as a disease that is curable, and you can pinpoint things you can do to ameliorate it, then you, you'll find Big Pharma, which is the only player in town as far as really getting medicines on, into the clinic is concerned. Big Pharma will get interested if aging is seen as a disease that can be treated or an even cure. And so that's where quite a number of people are really pushing for that. And they've actually started so some trials with a medicine, which is, which actually seems to work on a lot of the processes of aging, but again, it's never been considered as a, as something for, to treat aging because aging is a natural process. But if you see it as a disease that's worth a addressing, then it's something that it's worth putting money into. And as you say, it seems so, it seems such a no brainer when you realize how much it costs to let our bodies run on until they get to be so decrepit and then keep them going. I mean, if you think of the corollary of a car, if you never serviced your car and, and wanted to keep it going when the, it had got rusty and all sorts of bits and pieces were falling off, if you keep it going all the way along, that's the way to do it. Well, as the owner of a 30-year-old car, I can definitely <laughs> relate to that. And, and until Big Pharma comes up with some nice, profitable, juicy cures, I think with the old-time advice that you offer is one that we should stick with. And I, and I think that advice is something that you know, to exercise and to eat well and to not overdo certain things and avoid smoking and pollution. Those are all things that we can all do. And and I think you know, we probably should have been reminded of this during our most recent COVID crisis, right? Certainly social distancing was important uh, and masking was important, but we should have taken this opportunity in the last year to really double down on our uh, healthy habits so that we could you know, protect ourselves, not just from COVID, but from, from aging. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's true. I think that there is a lot one can do to sort of help it. Um, I think, as, as I say, they are beginning to do some experiments with some repurposing drugs that are already in the, in the medicine cabinet for other diseases, which they've noticed have some effects on some of the processes of aging. And so now they're looking at these and seeing whether if we direct them towards the aging process itself, whether we can actually ameliorate things and stop people getting sick till much closer to the time that they would naturally die. So, so you know, that is being done at the moment. 
Well, I envy you your, your ability to do this great research because you get to meet all these fantastic scientists <laughs> and you get to talk to them and you get to interview them and get to spend time in their labs and kind of hear how they think and, and put it all together so eloquently, both in this book, Borrowed Time, and this one, P53. So everyone, check it out. Thanks so much, Sue, for joining me. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much, Greg. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.